everyone. Ellie Noss here with Atomic Moms Podcast, a top-rated iTunes parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. I join forces with best-selling authors like today, parenting experts like last week, and celebrities next week, uh, and caregivers all over the world to hear their unique stories in this universal experience of raising a child. Subscribe on iTunes at itunes.com backslash Atomic Moms, and please leave a review. Okay. Academy Awards were last Sunday night. Charmaine Obeid Chinoy won Best Documentary Short for A Girl in the River, The Price of Forgiveness. That's the one that's about the honor killings in Pakistan. She gave me my very first interview that I shared with the Huffington Post back when she won her first Academy Award, Saving Face. And God, it's just so inspiring to see a woman, you know, sp- Dare to tell the truth and dare to make people see things that they don't necessarily want to see in order to make change happen. She's clearly fulfilling her life purpose, which is the theme of today's episode. Sidebar, I'm also really happy that The Revenant didn't win Best Picture Because if you get in between a mama bear and her cubs, it's over for me. And then if you kill that mama bear, like I'm walking out of the theater. Actually, it was worse. I didn't walk out of the theater like I should have. Instead, I was the jerk who was like guffawing. Like, like, why are people still sitting here? He killed a mom. Why are you all still sitting here? Like, how can you care about this character? We just watched him murder a mommy in front of her babies. I really loved Brooklyn. If you haven't seen Brooklyn, you got to see Brooklyn. Okay. Today, I feel honored to share a conversation I had with New York Times bestselling author Lee Eisenberg about his new book, The Point Is, Making Sense of Birth, Death, and Everything in Between. Reading this book, I so badly wanted to take Mr. Eisenberg and his wife Linda out to dinner, but they live in Chicago. And um, I'm not a stalker. (laughs) So I invited Mr. Eisenberg to come on the podcast. And the internet kept going out. Time Warner kept disconnecting the beginning of our Skype call. And uh, I panicked. I almost booked a flight out to Chicago to do the interview in person. And I looked around my office and I was like, while well, I was rebooting my computer, wondering if that would help. And I was like, guys, can you believe this is happening right now? I mean, this is Lee Eisenberg, the legend. No, not, not Lee Eisenberg, who wrote for The Office and dated one of my friends. No, the Lee Eisenberg, editor-in-chief of Esquire magazine. Since like when he was 30 years old, he became the editor-in-chief. And he did it for 17 years. And he worked intimately with folks such as, oh, I don't know, Nora Ephron. Truman Capote, you know, the Lee Eisenberg, who's one of the founding fathers of the Rotisserie League baseball. Do I care about sports? Not at all. But I, I'll go ahead and put it out there. Lee Eisenberg is one of the people you can blame for the existence of fantasy sports. Lee Eisenberg coined the term power lunch. Lee Eisenberg uses the pronoun she as much as he uses the pronoun he. In his new book, The Point Is. I looked around the office and I was like, can you believe it? And the only being in my office was my dog, Chubbs. And he's like, oh man, Ellie, 
pull it together. Because <laughs> I remembered that uh, Atomic Moms is just me, my computer, and all of you listeners. The internet started working again. And uh, I got to tell you, he was so gracious, so kind and patient with this little technological hiccup. And it was a really, really special discussion for me. You know, all my interviews are important to me, personally. Uh, And this book came into my life exactly when I needed to hear it. It made me think, and, and I think he actually poses this question in the book, I, I don't remember pages because I'm listening to it on my phone on Audible. So I like remember the part of the neighborhood I was walking in when I heard it. But he mentioned something about if I knew I were going to die tomorrow, what would I do today? What would you guys do today? You know, sometimes it feels like everything has already been done or said. I'm feeling that way about trying to write mom blogs right now. I'm like, it's already been done and said. You know, people have been talking about the meaning of life since the beginning of time. You know, there's Aristotle, and now there's like the early 20-something life coach who's always trying to get us to sign up for their friggin' newsletter. But sometimes the message needs to come from a very particular messenger. It turns out I like my life-affirming, purpose-driven message to come from someone who's a little skeptical, who reminds me of my grandfather we lovingly called Grumps. I like to hear my positive messages from people who don't have a surplus of serotonin, who can make room for the negative, who don't seem to negate the pain and terror that also accompany life. That's what this book does for me. So in this discussion, we're going to be talking about happiness versus meaningfulness. Mr. Eisenberg and I are both in the camp that happiness derives from meaningfulness which I'm sure you guys would agree with, at least when it comes to raising children. Because if we sign up for having kids just so we can be happy, (laughs) well, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because, by the way, all the studies agree with me. But if we find meaningfulness in raising our children, that elusive tease, happiness, you know, she'll just like show up unexpectedly. Like when my daughter Sabrina clumps around in my sneakers Or when I finally noticed a sticker that has been on my forehead while I was at the grocery store and the dry cleaners and that that's why people have been smiling at me when I just thought I was wearing like a really cute top. (laughs) Mr. Eisenberg talks about the scribbler upstairs, the little writer in our brains that is trying to make meaning in our lives. By the way, classic Eliism in the interview, I don't call it a scribbler. I call it a scrivener, which you know what? I got to say, that works too. And also, Mr. Eisenberg emphasizes the importance of taking note of the little things that seem inconsequential right now because we'll infuse those boring little moments with meaning come 15 years. For example, if you take your kid to the library for story hour, it might not seem like much right now. But in 15 years, if you write it down so you can remember it, you'll be looking at it through a different lens. You'll look back in 15 years and there will be sunlight streaming through the window, creating a warm halo effect around your child's perfect curls. You know, if we share these little details with our children, they'll, they'll know that we were present. 
So Mr. Eisenberg talks about our first memories and what they say about us and how they kind of kick off our personal myths about ourselves. Think of your first memory. What was it? One of my earliest memories isn't even mine. It was shared with me, and I'm sure that's true for a lot of us. And yet when I think about it, I feel like I was there. For me, that memory speaks to my personal myth and sort of what's become my purpose with this podcast. You know, the need to protect children from unnecessary adult drama. This podcast is about like, how can we be our best selves so that we're not dumping a bunch of crap on our kids? It's about repairing relationships and it's about supporting this intense bond between parent and child. But enough of me talking about our talking about this. Let's jump into our conversation. A very fun, insightful phone call with Mr. Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is Making Sense of Birth, Death, and Everything in Between. Mr. Eisenberg, I want to start off with your essay, and it's also in the book, but why I no longer say I want my kids to be happy. Yeah, and I know that sounds kind of horrible, right? I sound like an ogre. Uh, I was at a party not uh, when I was researching the book, sort of in the later stages of it, and um, a woman said, okay, so what has this, you know, book, has this book changed you in any way? And have you learned anything? And I, without even thinking about it, I said, yeah, I've learned something. I no longer go around saying that I want my kids to be happy, which is really not a cool thing to say because she looked at me as though I was, you know, some sort of monster. And then I, I tried to recover quickly and explain to her, you know, what I meant by that. And what I meant by that is, you know, all of us, um, you know, my kids are now in their mid twenties, but since, since they were, you know, babies, I would, uh, uh, both say and think, you know, all I want for them in, in life is that they'd be happy uh, and healthy, of course, but, you know, that that goes without saying. But after researching this book about uh, how we make life meaningful and how we judge our lives to be meaningful or not, I had done a lot of reading and a lot of thinking, and I had come to the conclusion uh, that um, happiness, you know, even though it's obviously something we all want for ourselves and others, Happiness is really not, um, happiness is a byproduct of something else. You know, we can say all we want, we want to be happy. Um, but it's almost always going to result, if we are happy, it always comes from something else happening, if you will. You know, it's kind of not an end in itself, although it seems to be an end in itself. And the more I read about what, 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 what meaningfulness is all about and what a meaningful life is all about, I realized that the only hope of being happy was to be able to find uh, and achieve a meaningful life for themselves. Well, I uh, had a different reaction from most folks, I think, because I was so excited. I wanted to jump up and down when I read that because I have been shouting that (laughs) for years. I personally, I find happiness to be kind of, it's superficial too. I mean, it's like, it's great. I'm happy when I'm on the beach, but that's not lasting. And I think that I can only have happiness when I am really fulfilling my purpose. And I love that that's what you're saying. Yeah, that is what I'm saying. 
You know, I was reminded when I was writing the book, and I don't know, Ellie, if this was true of you or not, but I know it's true of me and a lot of people I know. Well, if you think back to when we were teenagers, uh, in our alone in our bedrooms on a Friday night when everybody was out having fun, and, you know, I was sitting there reading Catcher in the Rye or... You know, you're probably much younger than me, so you might well. You might have been reading Catcher in the Rye. Definitely, but. we all have, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even kids today who might be reading The Hunger Games, or you know, some book or other that is kind of a, makes us think about why we're alive and why was I born, and and we sit there thinking, well, and I remember vividly thinking, is it better to be like me, you know, up here in my lonely room on a Friday night? Um, thinking these existential thoughts, or was it better to be like all the kind of cool kids and the A-list kids who were out having fun on a Friday night who never had to worry about getting dates for the prom and all this other stuff? Is it better to be like me, or is it better to be like that? You know, they seem so happy. They seem so mindlessly happy. Life was so not complicated for them. And, you know, I did. I do remember, maybe part of it was, you know, self-justification, saying, well, I would much rather be like me. And then, you know, for the, for the next few decades, I just thought that was a function of, you know, teenaged angst. You know, that's what teenagers do. They ask themselves that question. And then when I started researching this book, I realized that that whole question of, of happiness versus meaningfulness is actually a, has been a philosophical debate going back to the Greeks, you know, going back to Aristotle and Plato. And if you, even today, if you open up you know, these indecipherable, incomprehensible uh, academic uh, journals, philosophy journals, there is still this ongoing debate about the difference between happiness and meaningfulness and whether or not you can be happy if you don't have uh, a meaningful life. And, and there are basically two camps, if, you know, if you want to get into the theory of it. There are those, and I happen to be, agree with them, who, who believe that, that happiness derives from meaningfulness. And unless you have a meaningful life, um, you're probably going, as you just said, you're going to have these bouts of happiness, but most of the time you're going to be restless, you're going to be frustrated, you might be bored, um, and you won't have any sense of a sustaining and strong sense of happiness. The other camp says, yeah, that you know, meaning, having a meaningful life is important to, having, um, uh, to, to achieving happiness, but there are other things as well. It's just a component of, uh, of, of a happy life. But I basically come to the conclusion that unless and until we really attach ourselves to something larger than ourselves uh, or achieve something like a calling or we're, really com- or we're being intensely creative in our lives uh, or, if, or if, we're not, if we're not recognizing beauty in nature or art or a million other ways to, to have a meaningful life, Chances are, as you say, our, our, our flirtations with happiness are going to be very um, fleeting. When I was listening to your book, I got so excited, too, because I, I had to t- I went, when I was at Smith College, I had to take agent philosophy my senior year, and I didn't want to take it at all. And then listening to your book, I was like, oh, that's why I took this class, so that we can have this discussion now. <laughs> Well, I, I, I never took it, actually. And, you know, when I, the, the, the book I set out to write, is not, it was a rather audacious idea for a book. It's incredible. I don't know how, <laughs> how many years did it take you to write it. 
it took me about three years to write it. Um, but, you know, I, I, the reason I wrote it was because, you know, both in personal terms, you know, we all reach a point, many points in our life when we say, you know, what's this all about? I mean, why, why am I here? Why was I ever put here in the first place? And what's going to happen, you know, after I'm not here anymore and so on. So we all have those thoughts. And, and, it, and we're living at a, at a time now sort of in the culture where, uh, we don't really have these models of how we should live our lives. You know, once um, once upon a time, many more of us were religious, and it was very easy to know what a meaningful life was because you just had to follow the directions in the in the good book or you know in 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 some sort of master plan that was handed down from the heavens, and we could sort of attach our own lives to what the commandments were, and that was it. Uh, or the Greeks, for that matter, you know, they had mythology, and uh, which gave them great lessons in life. So they had these models or templates or or things to sort of pitch, to hitch their own stories too. But we're living at a time where where we don't really have a lot of that, or many of us don't have a lot of that. So I wanted to write a book about finding meaning at a time when there were no easy, ha- uh, handy models for us to follow. And, you know, that's not a small thing to do, and I sort of drifted around for a year or so doing some reading and mostly interviewing other people about, you know, do you think you have a meaningful life, or tell me about your life story and what was the most meaningful chapter and what was the least meaningful chapter, and do you think it's meaningful now, and what do you think will be meaningful between now and the time when your story's over, and so on. And I began to, you know, accumulate all of this uh, sort of this contemporary oral history about you know, people of all ages, you know, from their 20s all the way up to their 80s. So that was a big part of what I did initially. And uh, then I did do some reading, went back and, you know, read. Uh, obviously, I could not be comprehensive. People have been asking themselves, why why am I here since the Garden of Eden? Um, and and then finally, I began to zero in on how to do this book. Uh, and um, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but it has a lot to do with this life story that you, Ellie, are carrying around in your head as we speak, the life story that I'm carrying around in my head, that everybody carries around in their heads. And I began to realize that that, that our sense of whether we have a meaningful life is largely determined by this sort of private life story that, that is made out of memories that we've been, in effect, writing, not really writing, but, you know, I mean, creating in our heads, uh, since the time we were probably three or four years old. And I began to, and if there's something I think that, I, that I'm very pleased about in terms of the originality of the book, it's, it's this idea of how we quote-unquote write our life stories and then how we go back and interpret those life stories uh, over, over the course of our, of our lifetimes. You talk about the Scrivener upstairs and I have to share with you that my Scrivener, I, I think a lot of our Scriveners, um, I think they can save our lives. I, When I had a giant cell tumor uh, five years ago, I got through that experience by taking notes on my nurses and you know noticing every little detail and almost treating the experience like I was a character in my own story, which I am. Yeah. But, yeah. but to be able to have that sort of distance within the experience. You're the leading character in your own story. Yeah. I'm, so, yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say Not obviously glad that you were ill. I'm glad <laughs> that you're better. But I'm really, really happy to hear you say that because that, that goes absolutely to the heart of, of this book, 
which, which is that we, we are constantly writing our own story, uh, not down on paper, but in our head. And at a certain point in the book, and I'm sure you remember this, toward the end of the book, I had something of an epiphany, which I realized that, as you just explained, once, once and only once in my life, I kept a diary. Uh, it was, I started it the day our son was born, and I stopped keeping it about 23 months later after our second child, uh, daughter, was, was born. And I have not, I had not gone back, and I, I'd forgotten about it, frankly. And I, I had this epiphany one day, and I raced home, and there is this, this eighty-page word document that had been sort of put, forgotten in the corner of my hard drive, and it had gone from desktop to laptop to desktop to laptop. It, you know, it survived eight Macintosh upgrade system upgrades. It even survived Steve Jobs himself. I know that's remarkable. <laughs> and I went back and read it for the first time in about 25 years. And it so opened my eyes to this idea that we go through life having, you know, these experiences, uh, some of which are very striking and important at the time. Some of it, some of them are meaningless at the time, but we don't often stop to, to write them down literally. And, um, when you go back and you reread uh, these experiences or descriptions of events or relationships of other things in your life, you often go back and, and experience them in an entirely different way. You know, you're at a different point in life. You're in a different mood. You may be in a different you know, situation as far as your health is concerned. A lot of, different, a lot of things change, obviously. But if we don't write them down, if, if we can make mental notes of them, but the mental notes don't hang around very long, usually. Um, but when you write them down and go back and revisit them, you begin to see that your life has probably had a lot more meaningfulness in it than you remember or that you give yourself credit for. Um, so I, I wrote up that part in the book, and you know now that I'm being interviewed in the book uh, about the book, a lot of people said, "Well, what about you know Facebook? What about social media? We're always writing down our observations there." No, it's gone. It's gone. Uh, <laughs> it's totally gone. And uh, and by the way, your observations are interrupted by advertising, and you know. And it's for an audience, right? Exactly. Exactly. So that you should have you should have written this book. Actually, well, you're absolutely right about all of these. Uh, well, thank uh, everything you. you're well, I'm so passionate about this. I can't express to you how happy, in a not superficial way, your work has made me. I want to talk to you for a moment about, you know, the flexibility and the openness that we need to have in redefining our main character, as you say. Because a lot of moms, we go through this new stage. Stage. I mean, we're not at the elbow of our life yet that you talk about in the book, Middle Age. And so for now, this is like a new chapter for parents. And as you were saying, when you were doing your diary entries, you're recreating yourself as a father. And so I'd love for you to discuss a little bit with our listeners, like the importance of staying open, that we're not just one character throughout life, that we're we're constantly changing and to be open to that. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole subset of psychology today called narrative psychology, and it, it makes a whole lot of sense. And it's, it's basically what you just said. When we start having some sense of self, and that, you know, that starts when we're kids and it intensifies as you know, time goes on. And by the time we get to be teenagers, for example, you know, we're, we're changing our sense of self you know, as easily as changing our socks. 
you know, and, and what these psychologists refer to it as is, is creating a personal myth for ourselves. And, you know, that doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's, it's a myth that we are, we are creating and that we use this, we evolve, that myth evolves over time. And with any luck, the myth, you know, gets deeper and grows and becomes smarter about itself and everything else. So that um, at any given moment, you know, if I were to ask you what's your personal myth, you know, you might say I'm a, you know, I'm a loving mom who loves this, that, and the other thing, and 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 that, and that's how you are casting yourself right now. I'm a modern day Lucille Ball. <laughs> okay, well, that's yeah. Okay, that's how you think of yourself, and and in fact, that's maybe how you try to come off in the world and how Probably. you, well, so we write, we're continuously evolving and rewriting, or sometimes we, sometimes we stay with the same personal myth forever, but, but it, 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 it's how we cast ourselves in our own novel or in our own movie or in your case, sitcom. And, um, <laughs> I cast myself in a great epic poem, by the way, not just <laughs> I don't but, know. You kind of cast yourself in a Woody Allen film too. I'd yeah, say. I've heard that. I've heard that before. But um, and as I write in the book, my right. personal myth. You know, when I was getting out of college, when I was or at graduate school, when I was twenty three, my my personal myth is, you know, here's a noble failure. You know, I thought of myself as this guy who certainly had the ability to write the great American novel. But my personal myth was was of somebody who never would write the great American novel and would probably drink himself to death from early liver, liver failure writing jingles on Madison Avenue. I actually liked thinking of myself as that. Okay. And then one day I, I got lucky. One day, I, it's a long story, but I won a contest and got a job to be a, a junior editor at Esquire magazine. It just happened overnight. So I had to furiously rewrite my personal myth to include uh, the fact that you, one can be lucky in life, you know, that there's actually fate that comes along and does something nice for you. Um, and, um, and we're always doing that. But, but I think to your point, we have to be open to changing our myth. If the myth is not working for us, or if it's a negative personal myth, and a lot of us, you know, I'm the, I'm the woman who never went out and I was the ugly duckling who, you know, nobody likes. That's not a good personal myth. And, um, and we need to then begin to figure out ways to be open to ideas, uh, as meaningful ideas, as you, as you say, and begin to try to change that personal myth, uh, from within. It's not altogether always easy, but, and it's easy to say and easier to say and, and, and then do, but it, it's something that's really important. I, anyway, what I, I oh, yeah, go on. No, you go first. I think what I'm so happy about what I'm, again, not, let's not use that BH word. What I'm so <laughs> pleased and proud, what I'm so pleased and proud about with this book is that I, I really do think it will give most people of all ages, I can't tell you the number of sort of baby boomers who, who, who are buying two copies to one of, to give one of them to their 23 year old recent graduate who doesn't have a clue as to how to think about purpose in life. Um, what I what I do think the book accomplishes is it gives all of us in a very contemporary way, a, an original way to think about some of the oldest questions in the history of you know the human race, which is why am I here and and how do I make this life story of mine more meaningful? I love how you talk about life genres and what is your genre and you know we're talking about mine as a sitcom let's say and. I'm curious about when we're being raised by our parents and we're very, very young, we don't have memory. 
And so you mentioned that there's transactional memory, which is when our parents share our, you know, our stories with us and sort of implant them in our brain. Yeah, it's called transactive memory. Oh, transactive. Ugh, I'm calling it transactional like we're shopping at Barney's. Okay, transactive <laughs> memory. Yeah, yeah well, well, it's not just parents, too. A trans, a, 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 you'll excuse the jargon here, but a transactive memory system, which is how cognitive psychologists talk about it, is, is when you basically draw not just on your parents, but in, in previous times, the tribe... Uh, or extended family, or, or or a group of people who are you know you know not you, and you use that group or your parents as a sort of a memory archive. They ha- they collectively have a group memory, and you draw on that memory to 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 know you know what happened when to you and you know how you got to be where you are. Now the problem with that. As I as I think you, I know that a little birdie told me that you you got some conf, conflicting uh, memory input. Yeah, from so I want to know parents. exactly. I want to know, <laughs> you know. So we each have our own genre going, and so then, what's the what about when your parents have different genres, and then they're telling you the same kind of s- story, but in different light? Like my mother would be Julianne more with like Philip Glass soundtrack playing and then my dad is like you know a John Hughes film so yeah which so, which do I take so are you saying that's why you're so screwed up today are yeah, you accusing, yeah. the transactive memory system for ruining your life I'd say that that's why I'm um a very optimistic excitable pessimist <laughs> Yeah, I would I would quibble with whether the conflicting memories are the root of your deep problems today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it was that that it was inconsistent memory inputs. Uh, I, I, it could have contributed, huh. but I, I I think I think it's it's really it's sort of apart from uh, that. I mean, if if your parents, and I'm not suggesting your parents, but if your parents were at war with one another. And you were getting very conflicting messages about love and security and, you know, all the rest. And then I could say that could be a factor. I think if your parents said, you know, you were, if one said you, you know, you were always a, a, a picky eater and the other one said, are you kidding? You ate like a horse. I don't think that's going to screw anybody up. I think you no. can probably, any person can pretty much figure out what the truth of it was. Right. And for um, and for our listeners and for especially my parents, I did not write Mr. Eisenberg saying that you screwed me up. <laughs> I didn't I know. I know. Nor did I mean that. But I but I'm I curious because the, I'm I'm curious yeah. about the you know, with my daughter, she's she's two and a half. She won't remember anything that has happened. And but it's my responsibility to sort of share the memories of her with right. her in a way that are you know, that is honest, but also maybe a little upbeat. <laughs> well, she may not, she won't probably actually really remember anything, but she will. The whole idea of, a, of these early memories often is that we, we, over time, she will believe that certain things she thinks she remembers really happened. And in fact, many of them won't have happened. They, it will be the result of transactive memory, which exactly. is something you said. Or obviously, we've all had this experience of we act, we really believe we were present and remember something when in fact all we 
really have seen is a photograph of that thing, but but it becomes uh, reality. Where I think where I think transactive memories come into play, I, I, well, in my case, for example, I, I have virtually no clue as to my longer genealogical story. I mean, I, I I knew my grandparents on one side, and I didn't know my grandparents on the other side. Um, and I have absolutely really no clue as to my longer sto- story on my father's side. All I know is that my father's family came over here from Austria. Uh, I don't know where in Austria. I don't know what they did. You know, it, it's a total and complete blank. And where I think that it hasn't screwed me up exactly, but I, I have gone through life hope, wishing that I kind of had a longer generational fix on where I came from, because it, it, I think it would help root me a little bit better in, in my existential, why am I here? You know, I would have longer history uh, to, to sort of reflect on a little bit. I'd have a longer view backward or something like that. Now, again, I don't think I'm a crazy person, and that, not knowing that doesn't make me crazy, but I think if I, if I knew you know, that they went back several centuries to X, Y, and Z, I think I might have a different sense of time, you know, a long sense of how time rolls out and how centuries and millennia roll out, and I am but the current, you know, actor in that very, very long drama that goes back to such and such a place. I, I can't do that, and and again, I can live very, you know, satisfactorily in the present. But I think it often helps to uh, to be able to place yourself in the lo- in the longer sweep of history, which uh, I can't do. And I and here's and the other thing is to close the thing on transactive memories. There are there's nobody left that I can ask because my parents are no longer alive, and their obviously parents are no longer alive, and we have a relatively small family to begin with. So I don't know where to reach. Uh, other than you know online at a genealogical site, and I've tried doing that, and they basically you know come up fairly empty. So it doesn't make me un, you know, it doesn't make me unhappy, but I do. Uh, it sort of makes me a loose molecule in the great sweep of <laughs> of uh, world history. It's so interesting because I imagine your great great grandchildren someday will be able to look back and easily find information on you. So you're giving them that gift in all the well, that that's, you created. Yeah, and Martin Amos, you know, the British writer, has actually said this, and I believe this very much. My great-great-grandchildren may well come upon this book. And as Martin Amos has said about his own life and kids and, and, and future generations, they will have some insight into me and what I thought and how I thought. Uh, by virtue of of this uh, of this book or anything I've written, which is why, uh, and I think I'm, I know you know people like this, which is why so many people today are say things like, "I want to kind of get my life story down on paper." You know, they they have no particular desire to publish it, but I want to. I'm I'm keeping notes or I'm trying to write a family history or whatever it is, and then when when I ask them why are you doing that, they all all of them say. Uh, in case my my kids or my kids' kids or their kids' kids' kids uh, would be curious someday. Now, it's obviously a great benefit to those kids' kids to know, you know, the family history. But I also think there's something else at work, which is sort of this kind of swipe at symbolic immortality or something, that, mm-hmm. is, that if, it, if this diary of mine or this family history of mine 
you know, that might be read 70 years from now. Um, I, obviously, I'm not around anymore. The writer isn't around anymore. But there is a sense that, you know, that person does live on uh, through, um, you know, through, through, that, through that diary or journal uh, that, that so many people, when they reach a certain point in life, uh, somehow have the impulse to, to keep. Well, this, that's how I feel about this podcast, too. I know that if anything ever happens to me, my daughter will be able to listen to these. I should probably put them on tape, you know, who knows, with the Internet, but um, uh, that she'll always be able to listen to her mama's heart. So, yeah, Mr. Eisenberg, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure when you were doing a vision board... <laughs> I just imagine Mr. Eisenberg with a vision board and in the middle of it was like, if I publish this book, I'll get to be on Atomic Moms. So I'm glad I could make that dream come true for you. And <laughs> You never know. Hey, the, the podcast, this podcast may be the thing that survives. My, you know, who knows? I mean, and, and, if, and this could be the way anybody knows I ever existed. So you never know. But lies ahead. Thank you so much. Oh, I my really pleasure. appreciate it. Ellie, this has been delightful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next week, I'll be speaking to actress, model, and host Garcelle Beauvais. You know her from the Jamie Foxx show, Franklin and Bash, and Hollywood Today Live. She came over to my house to talk about raising twin boys, being a single mom, her children's book series, and co-parenting after betrayal that went public. Like page six, public. She is inspiring and hilarious and she's just such a badass mama. Uh, and getting to talk to her was one of the most fun hours of my life. And I can't wait to share it with you guys next week. Hey guys, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. <laughs>